Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. One thing that I have noticed is that American conservatives spend remarkably little time reading or engaging with any serious ideas on the left. Yes, they might read a New York Times article or see a Rachel Maddow segment and push back against that, but you really don't see that they've read anything serious from a leftist perspective. They talk about Marxism and socialism, things like that, but have they really actually studied any of the sources or know anything about it, really? Uh, For the most part, they don't. And that is a little difficult, I think, because conservatives in America tend to operate off of a you know a canon of books uh, that are relatively readable. So you talk to you know some young Republican type today, and he would tell you, "Oh, you got to read Hayek's Road to Serfdom," and you can pick up Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which I think was written during World War II. And although it has a little bit of an anachronism because it's talking about you know Nazis and the Soviets and things like that. It's a very straightforward, very easy-to-read book, and you're really able to just, oh, wow, this is great. These ideas make sense. So the the books are very readable, and people will still point back to the books today. The left tends not to operate that way. And additionally, any books that you might read on the left, my experience of them has been that they're relatively unreadable uh, for a variety of reasons. One, many of them were sort of deliberately uh, obscuritarian, uh, if you want to use that word, uh, another is that they tend to be filled with, you know, the minutia of debates of the day. So if you take a book, uh, which actually a very good book called Manufacturing Consent by Herman and Chomsky. It's kind of a famous book. You've probably heard of it. Um, the term manufacturing consent actually came from uh, Walter Lippmann and public opinion. Uh, but it, it's a very interesting book. The thing about the book, though, is 80% of it, maybe even more, is going through the minutia of U.S. policy in Central America in the 1980s. Here's what we were doing in Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua. And then there's a section on the, you know, Vietnam and there's some other ones. And like, if you have no idea what happened in Guatemala in the 80s, which if you're, you know, under the age of 40 and maybe even under the age of 50, you don't, this book is not going to make even the slightest bit of sense. They're talking about, why this group of nuns over here was killed and this and this and this. You don't even have a context for evaluating it. So a lot of times you see that these books just happen to just have immense minutiae about events that, um, you know, really, if you don't really know much about them, you never lived through them, aren't going to mean much. I mean, I, I think about it, I haven't done this, but you know, imagine reading a bunch of polemics about the Dreyfus Affair in France or something like that. And it's like, it's probably not going to make a lot of sense. And I, I've noticed that that tends to be the case in a lot of these books. And many of them are kind of, you know, obscuritarian as well, which I think is a little unfortunate because... If you started reading these people, you would realize, like, man, they were actually smart, and they have a lot of profound insights about society. You know, they're actually much smarter than the right in uh, important ways. And I want to just talk about one particular book from one particular thinker a little bit today and just use that as a platform for talking about some other things that probably weren't necessarily related to him. Uh, And that book is One Dimensional Man by Herbert Marcuse. Now, Marcuse was one of these cultural Marxist Frankfurt School guys. You hear a lot about him. He's sort of a boogeyman. Most people um, 
really have never read anything by him. And I almost would really tell you don't read anything by him because he's extraordinarily difficult to read. It's like this guy, uh, you know, it almost seems like he deliberately avoided stating anything in plain English. And so it makes him very inaccessible. And I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing, though, if some people who talked about cultural Marxism in the Frankfurt School actually, like, read some of the Frankfurt School people and saw what they were saying and saw what they were doing, just like with the postmodernists, you might discover that they actually had some profound insights about the nature of society. And One Dimensional Man is one of those books, I believe it was written in the 50s, that really does have some timeless things to say about society. And again, I, I wish I could tell you, oh, you got to go read this book. Unfortunately, and it's an extremely, uh, you know, kind of audacious read. So if you really are sort of intellectually oriented and you really want to slog through something that's going to be difficult to understand, it'll take you much longer to read it than the length of the book would suggest. Uh, try it out. Uh, or, you know, just read some, Google for some reviews of it, and they'll give you a good pricey of it. Um, but one of the things, there's a lot going on in that book. Uh, but one of the things that's going on in that book is that Marcuse, and I'm not going to call myself a Marcuse scholar or expert, so don't think that I'm holding myself up as an expert, right? I read this book and probably skimmed over more sections of it than I, than I probably should have just because it's so, it's so heavy going. But the key is one of the things he's talking about here is, you know, why didn't the revolution come? And, you know, what what has happened that essentially, you know, the revolution against the systems of oppression never came. And one of the, the things in this book that he basically says is that the re one reason the revolution didn't come is because the system was able to integrate and incorporate all potential forms of resistance into itself and essentially neuter the very idea of uh, or possibility of genuine dissent from the system. And one way it did this was through the provision of material prosperity. Basically, capitalism, in essence, delivered the goods, gave people enough of a standard of living that, you know, they, they weren't really interested in revolting. So I want to read a couple passages from this book. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too much on it because it's a little, again, it's a little obscure, but you might find it of interest. Uh, but here's what I think this is from the uh, introduction. Technical progress extended to a whole system of domination and coordination creates forms of life and of power which appear to reconcile the forces opposing the system and to defeat or refute all protest in the name of the historical prospects of freedom from toil and domination. Contemporary society seems to be capable of containing social change. Qualitative change, which would establish essentially different institutions, a new direction of the productive process, new modes of human existence. This containment of social change is perhaps the most singular achievement of advanced industrial society. The general acceptance of the national purpose, bipartisan policy, the decline of pluralism, the collusion of business and labor within the strong state testify to the integration of opposites, which is the result as well as the prerequisite of this achievement. So he's talking here of this ability of kind of modern, call it capitalist society in America to essentially absorb 
uh, absorbed scent into the system. And he goes on, the fact that the vast majority of the population accepts and is made to accept this society does not render it less irrational and less reprehensible. The distinction between true and false consciousness, real and immediate interest, is still meaningful, but this distinction itself must be validated. Men must come to see it and to find their way from false to true consciousness, from their immediate to their real interest. They can do so only if they live in need of changing their way of life, of denying the positive, of refusing. It is precisely this need which the established society manages to repress to the degree to which it is capable of delivering the goods on an increasingly large scale and using the scientific conquest of nature for the scientific conquest of man. So again, in essence, uh, to some extent, the delivering of the goods of modern society is one of the forces, you know, by no means the only forces that has managed to essentially render genuine dissent from the system impossible. If you go back to, you know, the 19th century with horrific conditions, maybe for the industrial working class, tremendous poverty, you know, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, uh, you know, limited democracy, etc. It's easy to see why people would, you know, be interested in revolting. In the 1950s, we have massive rising living standards, etc. Uh, it's a lot harder to see, you know, why you would revolt. Now, he did say that, you know, there were forces within the system that, you know, might, you know, might be able to break out of this. So he sort of he sort of admits, like, there's a contradiction here. I'm talking about the fact that dissent is impossible, but I'm talking about the fact that, you know, the conditions for dissent, you know, seem latent in the system. And he goes on, and, and to some extent, you could even read this a little bit as a critique of consumer society. Uh, he, here's another line. He says, the people recognize themselves in their commodities. They find their soul in their automobile, hi-fi set, split-level home, kitchen equipment. This very mechanism which ties the individual to society has changed and social control is anchored in the new needs which it has produced. So again, there's some really interesting stuff in here. I'm not going to tell you to read it. And uh, I'm already 10 minutes into this podcast. I'm realizing, man, I'm probably not going to get through all the stuff that I want to get through today. Uh, so it's something that um, I, you know, I'll, I'll probably continue it next week. I, I could probably do like a longer podcast today, but but some of the other stuff is, it's actually a little bit separate. And so maybe I'll, maybe I'll go with that. And so in essence, you know, again, I'm just going to home in on material prosperity and consumerism. The fact that our society has, through mass marketing techniques, created the demand for this consumer life, you know, for the iPhone, for the TikTok video, for the Instagram likes, you know, for the latest gadget. The fact that it's created, essentially manufactured these desires, and then is able to satisfy them for the majority of people, um, you know, makes dissent very difficult. And so I think about a lot of people today who seem really negative towards our society. And they're like, oh, we need to have a revolution. We need to have this. We need to have that. And I think we need to look at our system. And I say our system looks extraordinarily stable to me, in part because the average person still has a pretty good quality of life in a lot of ways, you know. Most people, and to the extent even that people maybe don't have as good a quality of life as they should, they don't want to lose what they have. And so there aren't these sorts of tremendous material privations or tremendous acts of overt, 
you know, you know police state style repression affecting the vast majority of the people. And basically in that environment, um, you know, dissent is really, you know, not going to be possible for the average person, I think. Now, again, if you look at this, this is writing, I think, in the 50s. And in the 60s, there was sort of was a social revolution uh, of sorts in America. And so uh, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I think it's one of the things that anything that looks at we need to make some fundamental changes in our society, we have to look at uh, the fact that our society has, in fact, produced some level of material prosperity, and that level of material prosperity um, itself um, you know, really is a, a tremendous Im- impediment to any sort of genuine social change, excuse me, genuine social change. And it may seem like there are all these forces out there that are acting against the system, but in many ways, they are sort of uh, themselves a, a part of it or even integrated into it. So again, Marcuse, here's what he said. The vamp, the national hero, the beatnik, the neurotic housewife, the gangster, the star, the charismatic tycoon, interesting, charismatic tycoon, perform a function very different and even contrary to that of their cultural predecessors. They are no longer images of another way of life, but rather freaks or types of the same life, serving as an affirmation rather than a negation of the established order. And in fact, if you go back even looking at the kind of the 60s upheavals, yes, they had some profound social changes around things like the sexual revolution, but fundamentally, uh, you know, call it the, the American regime is still intact. These things were essentially contained within the system. They did not fundamentally threaten the American system. And so many of these things that are within it that we see, they're not images of a new way of life. Take a charismatic tycoon like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is he is essentially the freak show version, right, of an American tycoon and a lot of these things. And so you start seeing, hey, wait a minute, even the things that look like they're alternatives are in some sense limited and contained by the system. Something to think about. And um, so I think that's one of the things, and I'm going to leave you with one other aspect of Marcusa that I think is very, very important. And this is the second part of it that I want to come back to probably next week. And this is the idea. He's writing in the 50s, unprecedented material prosperity, rising standards of living, etc. You know, freedom as we understand it going around the world. And yet this guy categorically rejects the system. He's a revolutionary. He is not impressed with his material prosperity. He considers it a totalitarian and immoral society that must be overthrown. And in a sense, you know, the idea of a certain basic material flourishing of society, nevertheless, to him, did not morally justify this. We, in fact, are living in something of a totalitarian state. He would say we are living in a totalitarian state. It's not a totalitarian state in a sense that, you know, fascism in Germany was a totalitarian state or fascism in Italy was a totalitarian state. It's a different kind of totalitarian uh, state in a sort of technological society. But 
He said, you know, I think that that is a horrific thing, as he's basically saying, Marcuse here, and it needs to be overthrown and destroyed. So he did not view delivering the goods in terms of material prosperity as the measure of a society. And I'm, I keep going, when I'm reading this, I was thinking about Charles Taylor. He actually makes some Charles Taylor-like statements about the sense that all transcendent goods, a transcendent good would create a second dimension of human uh, uh, existence when we're limited to essentially human flourishing in this world, in this life, material delivering the goods. That's a very one-dimensional view. The, the transcendent view of society uh, creates a second dimension, a second source of value Apart from that, a different image of what it means to flourish as a human being. Uh, when we collapse down to this, uh, we really see a, again, we see this, you know, very limited uh, impoverishment of the human experience. And he's really rebelling against that. And I think power, in a sense, comes when you're willing to categorically reject the, you know, essentially the bourgeois way of comfort. And maybe I'll just leave it at that. But if you're not willing to essentially dismiss, disregard, or even view with deep hostility, to not hold in disdain, uh, to some extent, material prosperities and comforts, then you're going to be, we are going to be extraordinarily limited in what we are able to accomplish. I think it's notable that here's a guy who looks at all this material prosperity and says, this is an evil totalitarian regime. Something that I think none of these post-liberals in America would really look at our society and say, wow, this is a horrible totalitarian society that should truly be overthrown. I think there's still, you know, uh, you know we're going to take back the country mindset of it. It's not this idea that, oh, we're, we're going to, we just need to completely overturn the tables here. I think even the people who talk about it really don't want to do it, really don't want to institute a, a truly different way of life. And one reason that guys like Marcuse were influential and powerful is because they were willing to take that step. And so again, do your own reading on him. Don't don't take me don't let me be your lens on him and start repelling. Aaron said this about him. Go read some stuff about him. If you really want to read one dimensional man you, you can. And again, I would just say, look, to the extent that you can find some readable stuff of like left-wing origin, it's actually quite powerful and quite insightful uh, in many ways in a way that you start realizing like how, w what a poverty of vision there sort of is and um, in some of these kind of, you know, American conservative writings, which one reason they're so accessible is because they're so simplistic. Anyhow, I will come back next week and talk more about creature comforts and the nature of creature comforts and the barrier that poses to uh, change in American society.